Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. I am still here at CNCA in Palm Springs. I have another interview here. This interview is with a friend of mine. We've known each other now for a number of years. Uh, We came across each other at a seminar. This was probably back about six years ago or so. I had just started talking about uh, marker training, and it was a really new concept at that time in the professional industry. Uh, And uh, my guest here reached out to me, asked me tons and tons of questions, and ever since then we've been fast friends. He has an extensive background with detection dogs, in Canada and within the United States in partnerships and and working with people. So I'll let him do the story with that. Gordon, welcome to the show. Let everybody know, you know, your name and your background and how you got to where we're at now. Thanks, Cameron. It's kind of funny being on this end of the microphone. Usually I'm listening to you uh, (laughs) when your podcast comes out. Um, Yeah, we met a few years back and uh, my, my history with police, I've been in policing for 38 years now. Um, my wife keeps telling me it's time to retire, but I've got the best job in the world working with dogs, so that isn't going to happen anytime soon. Uh, I started with a major police department in Vancouver, BC, Canada, the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, that was back in 1982. My dream was all, always to get into dog handling, and uh, I was fortunate enough to do that in 1988. Uh, from 1988 to uh, 1996, I worked in our uh, canine unit within the Vancouver Police Dog Squad. Uh, I handled four dogs at that time. These were all uh, patrol dogs. Up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, a big part of our, our work there is tracking. We, we focus about 70% of our work on tracking. Um, we have the environment to do it up there and uh, the number of officers to set up proper containment so we can be successful. Um, my first dog was killed in the line of duty a year after he started, so some unfortunate uh, circumstances allowed me to continue in the unit. My second dog went down for medical reasons, and this really uh, got me involved in the training aspect of dogs. My third dog uh, had 
uh, grip issues and biting. So I was one of the first in my department uh, since the inception of the unit in 1957 to go outside my department and try and learn from others. And where did I go? I went to one of the Schutzen clubs that was locally in the area, spoke to one of the Schutzen uh, trainers there who happened to be a world judge. And he embraced me, brought me in, and uh, really built up the bite in my dog. And that's where I got my idea to, to expand my knowledge and go outside of the outside of my little enclosed world within the police department. Uh, I then worked another dog there. So a total of four dogs. Uh, we have a tenure policy or had a tenure policy. So it's the life of the dog and you're out. I then left, uh, was successful in getting promoted. And as fate would have it, a position came open for the sergeant in charge of the canine unit, as well as the trainer position. I applied and was successful in getting that. Uh, that was in uh, 1996. I uh, got another dog. Uh, as well as the sergeant in charge, we were able to work a dog as well. And I was involved with all the uh, training of all our, our basic, uh, basic training of the dogs as well as all the in-service. It was a huge job. We had 18 dog teams. Wow. Not a lot were dual-purpose, uh, all German Shepherds. We had a couple of dual-purpose uh, narcotic detection dogs. But guys, really, they didn't really want to do it. They wanted to do the patrol side sure. of things. They wanted the bite as opposed to the find. And it was really hard to get that going. So in 1999, I put a plan forward to start our first single-purpose detection dog program, uh, narcotic detection dog program. And uh, had to go through some red tape with my executive in that, but they, they uh, allowed me to uh, run two narcotic detection dogs. Started out with one. Um, there was no one in my local area to do any of that type of training, so uh, I had to go to the U.S., and that was the bordering state to us, Washington State. And uh, a fellow I reached out to I, I'd met years ago from, from uh, other conferences uh, was... Fred Helfers. Mm -hmm. Now, Fred, uh, I think he's forgotten uh, more about <laughs> dog training than I'll ever know, uh, but he was uh, very supportive. And I ended up going down to his facility, which was two and a half hours away, three times a week wow. to learn how they, he did his imprinting. These were aggressive alert dogs back yeah. then. Do his imprinting and training, dog selection, and sort of I mentored under him for, for almost three months. And then we got our first dog brought him back, worked in the, uh, in the environment, very successful. Our patrol division loved the dog, so much so that we were able to get a second one. Okay. And I did all that training in-house from what I'd learned from Fred I brought back. And, uh, again, aggressive alert. And, um, uh, again, very successful. We have, uh, you know, um, I don't know if many of your readers have heard the term BC bud, but some of the best marijuana in the world comes out of BC. Okay. And when it comes out of BC, it heads out on buses and trains and you name it. So a lot of our uh, officers, our drug detection officers, did a lot of interdiction at our bus stations, depots, sure. train facilities, and they were just clean in house. Uh, and that continued to evolve. In 1999, I was raising or had a puppy raiser raising a shepherd that didn't quite make the grade as a patrol, patrol dog. So at that time I thought, well, let's make him into explosive detection dogs, single purpose. He all had all the propensities to do that. Mm -hmm. So I sort of did it the DIY way. I took what I knew about the narcotic detection side of things and tried to bring that over into the explosive side. And I was pretty successful, although now I'm going from aggressive alert to passive alert. Yeah, big difference at that time, too. Big difference. Yeah. So I had to reach out to uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That's our federal police force in Canada. 
I made some very good contacts there and uh, they assisted me and uh, assisted me in the training. And in fact, at the end, uh, were instrumental in getting me certified to work that dog. So that was my introduction to, uh, to the uh, explosive side of things. And mm-hmm. uh, it sort of led to me where I am today. So what would you say, I got kind of two questions here. What did you learn from going from a drug dog to a bomb dog? What were some of the big changes that you had to adjust to uh, in that change? Well, first and foremost, it's obviously going from aggressive to passive alert. Mm-hmm. And what I had to do is, like in our validation for, for the explosive side of things, we're searching 80 cars in a parking lot as opposed to four. So yep. you got to move a lot quicker. You've got to detail that dog quicker, let him work, get out there, work the environment. If you're working in an outside environment as opposed to as detailed as we typically do with a narcotic dog around a vehicle. I'm looking for pounds under a car whatever, so I'm letting my dog basically dictate where he's Mm -hmm. going instead of detailing. Uh, So the expanded area to work and the time you've got to work that in as opposed to so much detailing involved. Yeah, like you you bring up a big point which still exists today, which is – a bomb dog searches a vast amount of area, and in most cases, drug dogs search a more concentrated area, whether it be a vehicle on a traffic stop or a house only uh, during a search warrant, where that bomb dog, it's a parking garage. Right. It, it's a whole terminal at an airport or a convention center or what have you, a major event. There are large, large areas, so the dogs... Um, have to maintain that level of search vigilance a lot longer. Um, Not that the drug dogs can't do it, but the training isn't designed or focused on uh, those longer durations like it is with a bomb dog. The expectation of your search area is very different. So, yeah, that's a key point I think uh, most start to learn when they make that switch from narcotic to explosive detection. And then, like you said, dating your time was the aggressive alert that was popular for drug dogs at that day and age. Uh, and, and the passive alert was a whole new concept for those, uh, for, you know, detection for explosive detection. Passive was, was normal. Uh, I would say with the exception of the Brits who always seemed to maintain an aggressive alert, even if it was a, uh, a bomb dog, you know, back in those days. And then of course now it's all changed, right. but, um, yeah, so your, your indications are different. Um, I, am I right in assuming that, it requires you to understand a different way to motivate the dog for those types of uh, indications where a active indication kind of comes natural to a dog where that passive indication was a little less. It was. And and I found the, actually the passive alert was a lot easier to train than the aggressive alert. Yeah. And we also, which is uh, surprising because most won't say that. That's right. And and I also found that we're, we're causing a lot less damage. Our narcotic detection dogs that I spoke about earlier, you know, they're going into cars and they're ripping stuff up. Mm-hmm. So we got some explaining to do on the passive side of things. The big argument back in my day was, Oh, the passive alert can't pinpoint odor as well as an aggressive oh, yeah. alert. But we quickly learned that that fact was not the case. And, um, they could do just as good a job and pinpoint just as well. And, um, uh, you know, when you look at the validation standards that we had up in Canada and still do today, um, when you talk about uh, dog searching, one of the validation uh, protocols was an entire aircraft. So you've got to let that dog range out. He's got to have excellent hunt to go out Mm -hmm. and continue that hunt during over all types of obstacles because they're they're hiding in overhead bins. They're hiding under seats. The dogs have to go over and under seats into small confined areas. 
So it's a lot more of a vast area that you're searching, and, and it's just a whole different methodology and training. And, and that's it's funny you bring up that because I remember that argument back in the day, which was, oh, yeah, a passive indication dog won't pinpoint. And that was probably the number one argument I constantly heard uh, at that time. It turns out to be completely false. But the mentality that we had was if their paws couldn't scratch on it, you wouldn't know where or it wasn't as accurate. And I always wondered, though, because uh, my thought was, well, they can't do that when it's really high. So it has the same probability of the dog not being able to pinpoint at times, too. You know, it didn't make it, you know, entirely better one way or the other. It was just a mentality. We were comfortable with that aggressive response dog. And no one wanted to change, so the argument became, uh, well, it won't be as it won't be as accurate to where it's at if it can't scratch at it. So right. that was uh, a <clears throat> where, where now is we use the, dog, the dog's nose or their focus tells us by pinpointing where it's at. So yeah, it's an evolution for sure on that one. Absolutely. So once you kind of you you do this for a while, you you had that bomb dog. Um, when did you retire? So again, we have a, at the time and still do in that a- agency a tenure policy. So my time was up and I'd done uh, nine years as a sergeant in charge of the unit and the trainer. And uh, I was I retired with my bomb dog at that time, my patrol dog. I was running two dogs, a single purpose okay. shepherd bomb dog and a dual purpose patrol dog. Uh, I turned that patrol dog, because he's still young, over to okay. a, a new handler and uh, trained him with that dog before I left. The bomb dog stayed with me. Uh, I then went back into the world, and my second passion is traffic enforcement. And okay. I was in our traffic enforcement unit, got to ride a Harley for eight years, which was uh, <laughs> was outstanding. And so I sort of continued in the in the uh, canine world through private industry. I started my own uh, uh, company and uh, was contracted by a major security firm in Vancouver to to uh, train their dog teams. They have narcotic detection dogs, explosive detection dogs, and patrol dogs. Now, their definition of patrol dogs are not the same as police. These are just more of an optics type of gotcha. a dog working out in the field. Um, they're only allowed for master protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do some scent work in the sense of uh, human scent if they're... Uh, Uh, guarding an area and there's some pretty strict validation standards put in place by our provincial government in relation to what they can and can't do and that's as a result of a number of incidents that had occurred even when I was in the dog unit in Vancouver we'd have security officers running around with dogs that they picked up at the pound and put a (laughs) harness on that said security yeah and they're out on the streets chasing robbers I went to a armed robbery where the guys had fled and when I got there I was told there's already a dog out chasing them and I was the only dog on shift that night, and it turned out to be a security guard with his dog running down the street. So my ability to apply my dog was certainly limited. So as a result of that, uh, uh, a working group was put together, and uh, standards were developed. And now these dogs have to prevent provinci- uh, sorry, pass provincial standards in, in narcotics, explosives, and patrol work. And so the agency that uh, hired me knew that this was going to be a requirement. And uh, so we, I've been doing that now for 10 years. They've got 47 dog teams, um, and they do the cruise ships, uh, a lot of the arenas. Yeah. Um, so we do uh, maintenance training and the basic training of those dogs. Uh, but then um, the time for the Vancouver police was drawing to an end because I was at the point where our uh, 
Our financial department told me that I was basically working for $2.18 an hour. <laughs> if you took away all the taxes and everything, I'd get back if I retired. So I thought that was a bit crazy. And yeah. an opportunity came open with uh, the Metro Vancouver Transit Police. And I was successful in getting in that unit. I knew they had a dog program in that police department. My dream was to get that, but I didn't think I would be able to do that in the time that I had allotted left. Mm-hmm. And, and that takes you to where obviously where you're at now right you have a you're a supervisor role and you still work a dog correct correct yes and uh you oversee how many dog teams we have six we're going to eight starting as soon as i get back we're doing the selection process for two more so in that program you're in a mass transit environment now which is very different than what you were doing before how would you describe as a bomb dog handler, the difference between what you did before with that, I would say, standard issue type bomb dog to a dog that has to work in an environment where there's an enormous amount of people, flow of people back and forth from areas, and then a specific type of vehicle, the, the trams or trains. Uh, describe that for, for listeners, how that works. Yeah, to give you an idea of the environment I work in, we cover a 700-mile square radius. We're a uh, multi-jurisdictional police agency that covers 22 police municipalities in the province of British Columbia. We have uh, 90 miles of light rail, heavy rail, and subway systems for our light rapid transit. We have a uh, ferry, that uh, two ferries that generate okay. uh, passage across our major inlet. We have uh, 1,800 buses that cover 20, uh, 2,200, or sorry, 229 different bus routes. So it's a vast area. Oh, yeah. And we have 69 transit stations where the trains come in and out of every day, hubs, if you will. The big thing about all that is it's a very volatile environment for a dog to work in. So you can go out and test dogs till the cows come home yep. and get some great dogs, and you bring them into that environment and they totally shut down. I remember one dog when I was getting picking for myself, beautiful dog, excellent hunt, prey, everything I was looking for. I brought him back. We take him back to one of our major hubs in Vancouver, and he just hit the ground when he saw the the, yeah. uh, the escalator as well as the fare gates that you have to go through. <laughs> and, you know, I tried. You know, I really had a lot of um, uh, hope for this dog. I tried to work him through that, but it was I knew right then and there it was going to be a be futile you know mm-hmm. i'd just be spinning my wheels with this dog so first and foremost it's finding the dog that has the propensities to do the job and also work in that environment it's an extreme and environment extreme like we've got trains coming in and out of stations the dogs are on the trains all mm-hmm. the time they're off the trains up and down escalators graded stairs they're on the ferries they're in amongst thousands of people I've had points when I'm walking on the system where I can't even see my dog at the end of the leash. There's so many people. So the big point there is the the volatile environment that these dogs work in, and we have to be able to let them work in that type of environment. So working a dog in that as opposed to typically being proactive and responding to calls in a regular type policing environment is a whole different ballgame. And even the training's different for that type of dog. We'll do training where I'll have speakers blaring, people yelling. We'll bring in decoys to start screaming, have backpacks lying around. I want my dog searching those packs with all those distractions. Yeah. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each 
or you can join the Ford K9 Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford K9 Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordk9.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford K9 now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Now you really have to, you know, uh, that was one of the changes I went through from being, coming from the law enforcement segment and even the standard military working dog segment to when I went to the Navy SEAL program where the level of the environmental stress or the environmental uh, conditions were so difficult and put a lot of pressure on dogs. You really not only had, like you said, the standard selection, things that you look for, you really had to up it to find a dog that could handle those type of environmental stressors and conditions. Um, then I moved to Vegas and even with the typical security dogs that uh, do bomb detection in those environments, those dogs need to have a really strong uh, environmental nerve, for lack of a better term, because the you, you can't replicate what happens in Vegas. You know, between the music and the lights and the the enormity of people that are there, uh, it, there's there's very few places in you know in the world that have those kind of things. I would say New York City, uh, probably Chicago, obviously L.A., various places that have those uh, those kind of conditions. But that mass transit environment, we have just people moving all over the place, people carrying scents on them. Um, the disturbance of, let's just say, an odor is stationary, but with that much foot traffic going back and forth, that disturbs. So you're not just dealing with your typical air current, how air is moving in that sense. You're dealing with conditions that also move it despite wind. Right. It's generated by people. So what are some of the things that you can do because your guys' dogs will also, you guys have the uh, person-born detection dog aspect for your bomb dog. Yeah, we just started that program when I came in last May, and uh, it's been uh, very successful. Uh, we've now just in the process of developing a validation standard to put through to our provincial government. Everything in Vancouver or in British Columbia, there has to be a standard in place to back up what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So um, we're our dogs now, as opposed to being so... Uh, 
reactive to suspicious packages, uh, calls, and just being out there proactively, uh, visibly on the line. They're now working their whole 12-hour shift because of the uh, person-born scent aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we typically work those dogs uh, in our large hub areas. Like we're we're trans, I think the number's in the range of a million passengers a day floating through our system. And uh, that's, you know, you got your morning rush, your afternoon rush, and then everything in between. So uh, we only use uh, the person-born side of things when we have a specific threat to an area. Our dogs aren't doing it all the time. But having said that, they don't have an on and off switch. Sure. I was out hiking with my dog just before I came to this conference and every hiker with a backpack that went by, he was casting in behind them. Sure. So they, they know their productive areas of search mm-hmm. and they keep looking, right? So that comes a point, well, what do you do if you're out there alone? We usually have cover teams and we do our person born scent uh, applications. Uh, but not to say you're out there by yourself because we work one man, one dog units. Uh, we're mobile. We respond to everywhere in that 700 square radius. So we're not typically with a partner. So that's another aspect we have to look at as we move forward in determining how we're going to, you know, if we do get an alert. But uh, it's the only way to clear a mass environment like that. Yeah. You've got people coming through gates and, uh, you know, you can't really do a static search in that type of environment yeah. unless it's... Uh, a suspicious package called in and you evacuate the area and then you bring the dog in. Sure. Now, how do you, you know, the obviously standard detection dog training, we are having the dog search objects or things. Now with the person born detection dogs, people are a odor target now as well. Uh, Describe for the listeners kind of how you make that transition for a dog to go from the typical detection search to now letting them realize people are valuable and are a search target as well. Right. And that was, uh, this was all new to me as well. And that was one of the biggest hurdles I had to get over. Uh, the dogs are so used to their static searching. They'll literally go into a transit station hub. And because we do so much training in those hubs, they get their memory going. They know where their hides previously were. And you don't even, they're like robots. They're just going and checking all those areas, right? So to get them now to focus on humans was a huge, huge hurdle to get over. The biggest hurdle. Once they got it, it was like nothing. They were quick and picking it up. And, and I'm finding now with, with uh, basically what we're working on is a thermal plume of the human that's mm-hmm. got mixed in with the explosive odor. And I'm finding they're picking up, they're picking up small quantities, 25, 30 grams from 75 feet on that moving target. So basically I just did a progression of working from uh, roller bags moving and getting the dogs to to work onto that. And then so you took something they knew, which is a bag. Exactly, and, and just put you, it in motion. You got it, okay. And then, and then obviously uh, the methodology I'm using is we're not having the dogs go up and sit on that moving target. We're, it's almost like a tracking dog. I'm, um, our, our handlers are reading that alert through the pull of the dog mm-hmm. and the pursuit, mm-hmm. and then we use a marker. Yep. And uh, once that handler's conf- uh, confirmed that he's on target odor, the decoy, that dog is marked. The dog, and it's a it's a perfect perfect scenario because the dog comes back to us. Our decoy doesn't even know we're behind them, and then our cover teams move in to, and either be uh, observation on that person or deal with it as a specific threat. Uh, but uh, just a progression, moving bags, and then and then uh, almost like a customs dog searching people. We we started hiding odor on people just mm-hmm. to just to know that that 
human being was a productive area for them now. They're going to get reward. I'd do lineups of my decoys and they'd we'd have odor in their in their cargo pockets. And mm-hmm. and then but I didn't want the dogs searching people because you just can't do that in a mass environment. It's very tough, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So we wanted to, to work on that thermal plume, the ambient mm-hmm. air around the person. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's when we started uh, just uh, doing uh, serpentines with the dogs behind people as they walked. Transition from roller bags to backpacks. And then I just get the uh, uh, police vest. bulletproof vest, mm-hmm. pull the panels out, put mm-hmm. my odors in there, mm-hmm. and put it on the decoys with their jackets on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a, a really good resource up there. We have community... Uh, volunteers that work okay. in community police offices so we'll fan out uh, we're doing a training day today can you uh, come out and i'll get 25 people out sure so i'm always constantly mixing up my decoys i was going to say is that one of the things that you have to combat oh. is two things that yeah, i've heard and seen myself is one like you mentioned the dogs will become visual and look for people carrying a bag or having a backpack on so then you have to work through getting rid of those visual cues so now it's just a person and then it becomes, well, you have to constantly change out who the person is that's carrying the target odor because in no time the dog figures out, oh, it's this person. Oh, yeah. Or even the person from the if it's the same family members. You know, it could be husband, wife, brother, sister. The dogs pick up the common odors that they have. So it really requires a thought process and planning to train, correct? Absolutely. I won't even go out unless I've got a minimum eight decoys. Mm-hmm. You've got residual, residual odor issues. If yeah. you guys got the vest on and now you put them back into that scenario, is the dog going to still hit on that? So we're constantly, I'll have 15 decoys. They'll do maybe one, one rep with, with each dog, and that's the only time they see that dog. And then we'll change the picture up where we'll put luggage on a cart. We do a lot of our training at the airport, mass pedestrian environment. Oh, yeah. And there's a, you know, you're doing a lot of proofing as well because you're, you've got thousands of people walking around, all different cultures, all different perfumes, you name yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And the dogs are working in and amongst that. And uh, you throw your target out there and to watch these dogs hit at a distance oh, yeah. is just amazing. Absolutely. And, and that, that is, it's really fun to watch that dog pursue that odor when they pick it up. You know, it may be going the opposite direction of them, whatever, but you get to see that dog, you know, do the change in behavior that we're used to seeing, but then follow that moving target and then commit to it despite however many other moving targets are right around it. Um, It it is something to behold when you watch it. Um, and, And, you know, obviously the concept itself wasn't really new because like you mentioned, customs had... Uh, use dogs to search people probably since I think late 70s, early 80s for people with money on them. You know, um, narcotics dogs, yes and no, not really super popular, but definitely I know customs was uh, focused for people carrying the money on them and the dogs. I remember when I was younger too, uh, customs officer being at the um, uh, gate for the aircraft. We came off the aircraft, we were walking by, the dogs just sitting there. So it wasn't new, even I think even I'm probably not wrong with this, or if I am, someone will correct me. But the Beagle Brigade with USDA did a very similar thing when you're in the customs area and you're coming from other countries. They have their little beagles walking around all the people and their bags, searching them for the odors of the you know uh, prohibited food items uh, or even some of the wildlife conservation items. So 
we just changed the odor context in that sense for the bomb world to start looking at people, especially after 9-11 when it became popular with Auburn starting off with Vapor Wake and it kind of progressed to where now uh, lots of the different mass transit or high pedestrian environments will employ a dog like this. Now, we also know the likelihood of uh, locating a, you know, the dog picking up that odor, following it, and stopping a bomber is lower, you know, probably a very low percentage of that. That would actually happen before a bomber realizing this is happening. If they do even see it, then other conditions may occur, them setting themselves off, what have you. Um, but the deterrent value is a very profound thing. And, you know, if somebody who had bad intentions had a device on them and they see teams out there that do this, they don't also know how good these dogs are, no matter what, they're going to at least avoid that area. So right then and there, it has the value in the dog team. So the uh, one of the things that uh, last year I was at the Pacific Northwest Canine Conference with you, uh, we were very lucky you worked some good deal there to get the guys from NYPD Transit Bureau to come do a lecture. And um, I'm lucky enough because I do lectures. I get to go around and see lots of different instructors and and, uh, briefings and things like this. Um, Theirs was awesome because they talk about lessons learned from their environment. And obviously, New York City is a main target for a lot of bad things to happen. Um, a lot of the things they covered, the typical news cycles didn't even share. Um, and they were significant. Um, talk a little bit about how you found those guys and what you got some, some learning lessons you've taken from that. And then you can kind of go into, uh, you were lucky enough to actually go to a conference that they hosted. Um, just so give us a, a little history about that from the PNW canine part to then when you went to see them? With the, with the, the, the conference, I'm always looking. This was last year was the first year we, uh, we introduced explosive detection dogs into our conference, and I was always looking for good instructors. And, you know, I kind of thought, well, who's, a, who's been there, done that? Who, who's going to be the, 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 the go-to people, at least in North America, to deal with this? So I reached out to... Uh, the NYPD uh, canine unit, the Transit Bureau canine unit. And, you know, when I reached out, I didn't expect to get any response. Uh, It's a big organization, 38,000 police officers, 3,400 just work in the transit system. But uh, lo and behold, uh, a lieutenant from the uh, canine unit, uh, Lieutenant Pappas, reached out to us, and I was just... I just couldn't believe how accommodating they were. Um, I invited him to the conference. He goes, I'm going to send you my top and two instructors, the sergeant in charge of the unit, and I'm going to come as well. And you don't have to pay for me. I'm just going to come. Yeah. And um, I reached out and had, had some conversations with uh, it was uh, Sergeant Randy Brenner and Detective uh, Wayne Rothschild. He's their head trainer. He's the president of the United States Police Canine yes, Association. Correct. Um, and uh, told them what I was looking for. They were going to come up and give a keynote lecture first. And then I asked, hey, would you mind hanging around for a week and taking a site? And they were absolutely uh, keen on doing that. So they came up, and uh, I just couldn't believe how accommodating they were and what we did learn. As you mentioned about their talk, just unbelievable. Like I say, they've been there. They've done that. They talked about 9-11. Mm-hmm. They talked about all their issues. 
Really important for me to see how they work in a mass transit environment. Oh, yeah. They have 56 dog teams just for their transit system alone. That's it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so we got to know each other very well, all three of us. Um, I would reach out to them, much like I pester you all the time for information, <laughs> yeah. reached out to them. And, uh, you know, I'd get the emails back quickly. And and then I got an email uh, in late in late in the summer asking if I'd be interested in going to uh, – a, a trainings conference in New York. It was called the Excelsior Challenge, put on by the Department of Homeland Security Preparedness Center. And they told me about this uh, this uh, uh, conference, and I said, "Yeah, I'd love to come." Uh, I was going to go as an observer, and then I got an email about a month and a half later, and uh, they asked if I'd come as an instructor. I was I was blown away, honored to to accept that. So we went to New York in September, and what this conference was, very interesting. It was, it, it's a conference run by DHS to try and bring all the three entities together, bomb canine units, SWAT teams, and bomb squads, to work together as a unit to solve a problem. And what they basically base their scenarios on are past events that have occurred. So the event that I was uh, tasked with instructing on in the canine portion was the uh, moss shooting in New Zealand. Okay. Where the fellow went in with the GoPro. Yep. So um, I was teamed up with another canine uh, instructor from NYPD. I was teamed up with two SWAT instructors and teamed up with two bomb tech instructors. And what happened, we had 45 explosive detection dog teams there. We had like 37 SWAT teams and like 42 bomb units from all across New York State. Wow. And they were all divided up into task force. And they'd have bomb, SWAT, and dog, and uh, bomb techs, and had task force one through eight, and they'd all get assigned a scenario for the day. So uh, they were they were basically told like this isn't a protracted event. This is a active shooter. You got to move. You got to react now. You can't sit and plan for ten hours. You got to engage. Nice. So. Uh, um, we wanted to see how this would work, how these people would all communicate, all these teams. So uh, day one, first scenario, we're out there watching. We have our whole scenario set up. It was an active shooter at a mosque. We actually did a video GoPro of him going in, shooting people. Uh, they, they got an idea what the scene was. We showed that to the task force before they responded. Okay. So scenario one, day one, who do you think took charge? Yeah, take it. you had to take charge. No, no. No. Out of those three. Oh, Gosh, I would say your tactical team. Tactical team. team. So yeah. the tactical team rolls in and basically forgot they even had dogs or bomb techs. <laughs> they go rushing in, they secure the area, then they start hunting around for things. Well, uh, we had some ATF guys there that made up some uh, inert devices that went boom. Oh. So we had explosive odor hidden in the suspect's vehicle and in his trailer, and uh, they had to clear these. And... Uh, the idea was you might want to call a dog in before you do that. Well, some of them didn't, and they went boom. And it was really hard for me as a canine handler to tell a SWAT team, you're all dead. Oh, yeah. And this is why you're dead. You opened that door. And what other resource did you have available to you? And um, quickly as the, weeks, the week went on, they started cluing in. So they'd secure the area, take care of the threat. Now they got to look at the different scenes. They'd call in the dog team. We had pre-areas set with odors so that the dogs would alert. And once that dog alerted, the dog team would call in the bomb techs. One thing I really learned from this whole experience was this. I've been, I, as I say, I started in the bomb side of things way back in 1990. 
um, or 99, sorry. And we train, we check off, check, check off the boxes. Okay, I've got four odors out, Anfo, Semtex, TNT, whatever, and it's gone in your training records. And you do your training scenario, away you go. Well, the way these guys train is real-life scenario training. So what, what really uh, set, me, uh, set this apart for me was on one of the first scenarios, the instructor from New York said, okay, handler comes back, I'm your bomb tech. Tell me what you got. Uh, what do you mean? Well, where did your dog alert? Oh, he alerted in around that building there at a trailer. Have you got a picture? Uh, nope. Have you marked it in any way? Uh, nope. Have you got a safe route in, safe route out for me? Uh, nope. When did you? When did your dog alert? All these things that we've never ever done. Yeah. And that's what a bomb tech's going to want to know Absolutely. when I get a find. So what they do there, they all carry those little glow sticks that you can break up. Yep. So if the handler gets an alert, and this NYPD ingrains this in their handlers, they get an alert. Handler takes a photo of the alert area. He drops his glow stick where the dog alerted. He watches, checks the environment where he how he came in, how he went out. He takes time when his dog's alerted because I learned from the bomb techs, a lot of them have an hour window that they mm-hmm. won't even go near that because Correct. of the timers, yep. right? Absolutely. So if I can say, well, my dog alerted that at 2 p.m. and it's now 2.45, they're going to maybe wait that extra 15 minutes. Sure. So now I ingrain that at all my training with my handlers as well as the security dog handlers. So they'll go in and do a scenario and they'll come out to me. They'll show me a picture. They'll drop their glow stick. They'll tell me the time. And then I get them to draw me a map on their route in and a safe route out so that I can I can go in as a bomb tech or I can send my robot in. Yeah. And that really hit home for me because we never did anything like that, never even thought of it. Yeah, because right? the dog training was the only focus. Does my dog find odor in these different conditions? You guys exactly. never did action on find as what uh, is commonly termed. And where I came from in the special operations community – much of what you talked about has to happen. All those parts have to work together. So you have your operators within the operations team, the operators, there's your bomb techs, and then there's your canine handler. Um, In the special operations community, they're integrated a lot more. So those pieces are used to being used together. Um, But in the law enforcement community, not always the case. It's always this contest of who's going to be in charge. Well, we're the tactical team. We're in charge. We make decisions. And in a situation like you had right there, they got to learn they can easily work together. It's about communication and practice, putting yourselves in those situations, creating an a SOP of what to happen, a standard operating procedure. So like you said, okay, we as a SWAT team get control of the area, have situational awareness. Okay, let's employ our tools now, tool in this case being the bomb dog. Bomb dog deployed up to clear and or search areas. If an indication happens, how do we identify that? And you're right. The glow stick is a very common tool. Um, another one is chalk because if you're, let's say, in an environment, I taught this to handlers years ago, um, in an environment where there's lots of rooms, chalk is very easy to use because you can line walls. You can just put a dash as you go down walls. So if that individual who's a bomb tech has to go in with a suit on or a robot, they can easily see the yellow lines on the walls or whatever color of chalk you're using. Um, You can also, on doorways, put a check mark that you've checked that doorway or a big zero that you haven't checked the doorway. So again, as they move down, they're able to visually see where it's safe, where it's been checked, what's not been checked. And then for us, if we're using chalk, we would just X the spot 
like you said, mark it in some way if you could with either GPS and or photo. And then you had your safe way out because, as you know, as a dog handler, you may be in a building and it's foreign to you. You've never been in there before. And some of these office spaces are cube farms. There's just cubicles everywhere. And before you know it, it all looks the same. Which way did you go? How'd you get there? And you can follow your check, your chalk marks all the way back out. And the best part is if it turns out to be nothing, end of day, uh, you do a search and you've made all these marks, soap and water or a sponge wipes that stuff right off and you're good to go. Um, but you have to practice these things and it has to be done uh, with the multiple entities that are going to respond because if your bomb dog handlers are just doing their thing and the SWAT team is just doing their thing and the techs are doing their thing, when you all show up together, when that real call happens, no one knows each other. No one knows how to communicate to each other. Training must be integrated. You can't keep being on that island to yourself because it serves no good when the shit hits the fan. We have to be prepared. So you got to see that happen, obviously, on day one when everybody was doing things their own way and what a disaster that can be. And then by the end, it starts working together like a well-oiled machine, correct? Correct. And, and what it also did, not only did the bomb dog handlers see what the SWAT team does or what the bomb techs do, but the bomb techs and the SWAT guys got to see how the dogs work. Oh, absolutely. And got to see what a valuable asset they are. And, uh, you know, hopefully going back out to their agencies now, they're going to use that tool more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they also saw the good and the bad. There was a, one incident we talk about, uh, and you mentioned it in your class yesterday, do we throw a ball at a bomb? And the argument I get all the time from from people is, well, I only do that in training. I wouldn't do that in the real world. And, and, and in this scenario uh, at this conference, it's a very high-stress Environment, you know. Mm-hmm. Although it isn't, it's a scenario. It was stressful for these handlers, sure, because they want their dogs to perform. A, they're dealing with SWAT guys that are watching them because they're the center of attention when they're put on the spot to work. And there was one incident where a handler uh, he rewarded his dog. He rewards his dog at source. I didn't know that, but we had a trailer set up, and uh, we had a pound of black powder under the door of the trailer, so the dog would alert, and hopefully the hand or they call in the bomb text. Yeah. But uh, the door was not totally shut tight because okay. they wanted to allow the bomb techs to be able to open it with a, with a robot instead of breaching it and sure. damaging it. And um, so it had a bit of spring to it, but the ATF guys had rigged it, so it goes boom. So the handler, uh, the SWAT guys, they said, okay, we want to get a dog up here to clear that trailer. So yeah. they bring in the dog, and, and as the instructor, we were, uh, we were told to let the handler know if he gets an alert. So the dog would, was working around the trailer. You could tell he was stressed. Working the dog, dog did a beautiful final response on the door. The handler looked at me. I gave him the thumbs up. He was so excited that his dog alerted and that he did well. He pulled out. It was like a lacrosse ball, and he winged it at the door, and it popped the door open, and it went boom. And so I pulled him aside after, and I go, you know, there's one of the the, uh, downfalls of you know, rewarding its source with a ball. Because you do as you're trained. You, and he, he goes, yeah, muscle I, memory. I'm just stressed. I didn't, and I said, it's muscle memory. It's just like shooting or pulling your mags. If I move my mag pouch from my belt to a molly carrier, I've got to now get that muscle memory back. Same sort of thing with the dog. You constantly reward its source like that. That's what's going to happen. And not only that, that's the handler component. When the dog is constantly rewarded at source, 
And all of a sudden, in a situation like that, when decisions are being made on the canine indication, you might, okay, how are we, we going to drag the dog back? You know, as, as you said, it takes a couple seconds for decisions to be made. So the dog indicates it's waiting there. Within a second or two, some dogs, depending on their level of motivation, when they haven't had that ball bounce off the door in front of them or the wall in front of them, those dogs might nudge, push a little bit, bounce against the door like, come on, reward me, reward me. And just that simple nudging with their nose or pushing forward may disturb that space enough, push that door or bump against a, could be a mercury tilt switch or what have you. And then now it detonates the device. And this kind of brings us to the marker conversation uh, where you and I became friends was that conference where I first kind of introduced it and you got to see it. And at that time, that six or seven years ago, people used to look at me like I was nuts for even bringing up the idea that the reward might happen away from where odor's at, uh, not understanding what classical conditioning was and that all I was doing was creating a signal that meant reward, except where we engaged with reward could happen anywhere. The signal always happened at the location of where odor's at. There was that, that mental stigma or that debate within that person's head of, well, I don't understand. The dog's going back to you for reward, which means the dog will go to odor and leave, leave odor. What they weren't grasping was the psychological aspect of classical conditioning. When you give a signal, the signal means reward, and the dog is acting as if reward is, is there. So with that said, you know the next phase of the argument, or as years progress, people are like, okay, I get it. That's great for bomb dog handlers. I don't need that for a drug dog. I'm still good at doing that. Now we're in the day and age of fentanyl, and you definitely don't want a dog who might anticipate reward coming from source because in that anticipation, the dog loads in motivation and exhibits that motivation in a, you know, I would say we call it like molesting the hide by bumping it, touching it, doing whatever. And with the dangers of fentanyl and how low it is for a reaction in a dog, especially street level uh, narcotics, you've now increased the risk of that dog possibly coming in contact with that because of that behavior, uh, because they expect the reward has to happen here. So the power of the marker wasn't now isn't just a great psychological tool and communication tool. It's now a safety aspect for both bomb and drug dog handlers. And your example for the bomb dog handler was perfect because they reacted in that mode based on their training and experience and muscle memory. So, um, talk a little bit about your journey through that marker phase because you were looked at for now a couple years as the crazy guy who listened to some crazy guy from Florida and now how it's been accepted even widely in your area. Yeah. Yeah. In those first early years, I blamed it all on you. Um, <laughs> it was funny. I, I remember, uh, I think your, your, your talk was called clear communication. Yes, something it was like that. back then. And yeah. it just, a light bulb went on with me and, uh, you know, I never, it never even entered my dog, my mind about not rewarding your dog or t- pulling your dog off odor. It just made so much sense. And, uh, so as you know, I came back home and started doing that with the dogs here and, uh, bothered you many times through texts and phone calls. And, you know, it's, it's a learning process. Oh yeah. It is a very, yeah, very much so. Very much so. And, and I had to it basically trial and error, but what rings home to me the most was, uh, I trained a, a narcotic detection dog in that methodology. And he went to one of our conferences the next year, 
and uh, he's out doing his scenarios and that, and he's doing his, and this dog, he, he did, he was, well, he had a great sit stare and great mark would fly back to the handler. And so every, every night after, uh, after our scenarios, we have a handler's meeting and I'm sitting in this handler's meeting and I hear one of the instructors going, did you see that guy with that dog? Did you see what he was doing? He's pulling him right off order. And it was just, it was like I had to sort of hide. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to hide under the table. I'm going to stand up for this methodology of training. So I explained it all. They still didn't get it. Yeah. I was almost run out of Dodge. Sure. And then, uh, but, uh, you know, as, as, as time went on, uh, all the dogs I've trained since meeting you now have been under that methodology. And now people are coming to me and going, hey, uh, I saw this uh, either on the internet or heard about this. Can you tell me about it? And, you know, at least they're opening up their mind to it. And and as I mentioned to you earlier, even at this conference here this week, you can just see how it's spreading now. And uh, and it's I think it's the way of the future. I mean, I would say, obviously, just because when I was first talking about it, (laughs) maybe 3% of the detection dogs actually did this. Um, Now... I would say we're at a strong 30, quickly getting to almost 40% of detection dog teams. And it's regional. You know, I would say southern, southwest United States has really gained with it big time. Uh, one of the main reasons is one of the biggest vendors, uh, Alderhurst, they now train all dogs that you buy from them with marker training. So that pushes it out really fast. So that is, is a big sense because now when the person buys a dog, it already has it. So that new handler doesn't know any different. Um, trainers now through all the different conferences that are out there, uh, the different instructors such as uh, Pat Nolan. Um, I mean, I, 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 there's, there's, a, there's a bunch now. Las Cabrero. There's, there's different ones that have been talking about this for quite some time. Jeff Meyer from HITS. Um, it has just grown and grown and grown. And, and like you brought up at this conference at CNCA, What's really nice is you have multiple instructors all saying the same thing. Um, you know, science is science. So whether you explain science or I explain science, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, we're not operating on that craft mentality like we used to where I'm the master, you're the apprentice, you better do it the way I do it, and if you don't, you're wrong. Um, and my good and my bad techniques pass on to you, which then you pass on to that next generation Versus looking at it at a scientific aspect, which is, what does the data say? What is reliability? What is what is happening? What are our numbers? Um, and Pat talks about that actually with one of his uh, trials of, of teaching dogs. Is he legit looks at actual numbers? Um, what are the percentages at? And with markers, it was significantly higher than anything else. Um, so it's great to see that you know you've been doing it long enough. You've been in the program. Um, I ask this question to most guests, how have you seen the science really progress throughout the years in your career in canine from where you started to where we're at now? Oh, it's, it's progressed light years. It's the science part of it coming in, even in the last few years, just on, on, uh, age storage, contamination, um, all sorts of things. Uh, you take out the dog science, uh, you, you bring in the actual science in relation to the odors you're training on. It's just evolved so much. Uh, my handlers, um, 
when I came into the unit, just starting exposing them to that, to the science side of things. Mm -hmm. It's just opened so much more for them. And they're always asking me questions a lot. I can't even answer. I'm going, well, listen to a podcast or something or or read some literature on this. Uh, And and a prime example in relation to scent, we we managed to acquire uh, uh, quite a quantity of ammonium nitrate. And, uh, you know, we typically train our dogs on 25 grams and they're banging that stuff on suitcases while we throw... We throw 25 pounds in a suitcase and our dog's walking it. Yeah. And they're, they're scratching their heads. They just can't believe this. And sure. I go, well, there's science behind that. And yeah. you've got to learn that sort of thing, right? So uh, it's it's a great – my job as an instructor now, as their trainer, uh, is has got – I've got more to do. I've got, to, I've got to show them that side of it. And I don't know all the answers because I'm not a scientist, but the information's out there that they can glean. And social media has changed that dramatically. Absolutely. I, think, I think that's another instigator as to why uh, we're seeing the evolution happen so much faster. So whether it be through videos or podcasts or whatever, the end user, the handlers out there have a lot more to look at than they ever did before. Plus – they have the ability, in a sense, to challenge an idea. Right. Um, to maybe, say, propose a different argument to what they've been instructed on, um, which then pushes your trainers to either evolve or get passed by. And, and, and me and you were, were talking earlier, we actually see that at conferences now. You see instructors who have their method and they've always used their method and it works for them, and no one's saying it doesn't work. But what's happening is those classrooms are getting filled up less and less as opposed to classes that have more of a science-based approach to it. Uh, in some cases, those are standing room-only classes now where, like I said, uh, a number of years ago, you had a science-related class, and it would be mostly empty, and then the other classes would be the full ones. So it's, it is a unique period of time we're seeing this, whether you be in the – a sport world or the professional world where we are seeing this evolution occur. Um, and one of the things I, I like about in this evolution is watching associations uh, change what they do. And one of the things that I liked about the Pacific Northwest canine organization was you guys were one of the first to do a double blind right. aspect of certification. And since you've been with Pacific Northwest canine, you know, for as long as you have, let the listeners know because to me, it's one of those organizations that's just not quite as known unless you happen to be in Washington, Oregon, Idaho kind of thing. But talk about what you guys do with PNWK9, um, what it is about, and I know every year you guys do a, do a conference. Right. Yeah, going back to uh, my early days when I started that single-purpose narcotic detection dog uh, program with VPD. Uh, I reached out to Fred Helfers, and being there a month, and Fred being Australian and liking his beer, yeah. <laughs> we would sit down in his office after a training day and just talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have, we were of the same the same thinking. Uh, you know, being in dogs uh, since 1988, I'd go to dog conferences uh, all over North America, and the patrol dog was always uh, the, the priority. Yeah, it was the priority, and then the drug dog, detection dogs, mainly drugs. Then mm-hmm. bombs, very few. Okay, guys, you guys just go over in that corner there, do your thing, and uh, we'll see you after the conference. And here's some aids you can play with, and yeah. we got a building here for you that's typically a meth house somewhere they've got. (laughs) Um, So Fred and I just talked and said, you know what, we've got to start an association that's dedicated solely to detection. Uh, 
you can bring in a dual purpose dog, but all you're going to be doing is detection. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how the uh, Pacific Northwest Police Detection Dog Association was founded back in 1997. Just over a couple of beers sitting, mm-hmm. talking about the needs that are, are arising. And so we've been uh, in existence now for 22 years. In 1998, we had our first seminar. We have a, a working dog seminar now where it's a little different than your typical seminar like we're seeing here today. We It's a working dog seminar. So we try and split it up for half your day is theory and lecture from speakers we bring in from all across North America. And... The other half of your day is you're out working scenarios with instructors that we bring in from all over the all over the place. Uh, the first day is typically a keynote speaker that takes up the entire day. And then the Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of the week is half a day you're in lecture and the other half you're uh, at, out at a site working mm-hmm. your dog and vice versa for the other two days or three days right till the Thursday. And our, our sort of our mission statement is this. We're not there to tell you how to work your dog. We're not there to tell you you're doing it wrong. We're not even there to tell you you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. We're there to give you some ideas. You can come out of there with uh, turning your back saying, well, what I learned is nothing. Or you can use, even if you use 5% of what you learned from some of these people, you've benefited from it. Absolutely. For the narcotic side of it, um, on the Friday we do a we, we have a certification standard that that's recognized and uh, it does now include a double blind. Uh, that when we brought that in, uh, thinking four or five years ago, I can imagine the turmoil it oh caused. Oh boy, <laughs> it was almost as bad as marker training. Yeah, uh, but now the guys they they know how it works and you're just going to go in there and work your dog like you normally do and. Uh, and now they, they embrace it. And, it you know, it really, really validates what they're doing. When they can go into a scene and either come out and go, it's clear, or I've got this, I've got this, and the randomization of it so that there's no input from the, uh, the, the certifying official. Mm-hmm. He's not even in the room. It's all your call. You come out, you hand us a piece of paper, and that tells you if you're right or wrong. Yep. So... Um, over since, since from 1998 up till 2018, it was strictly narcotic detection. Last year was our first uh, integrated narcotic explosive uh, conference, which you were at, and it was an overwhelming success. Uh, we had the NYPD there. We had some great speakers, some great instructors, and uh, I think it's because the uh, explosive detection dog industry is growing so much. Oh yeah. They're, they're really, you know, they have an appetite for training. And, uh, and we saw that, and uh, the, um, the critiques were just outstanding. So this year, uh, we're running a dual conference again in May, and we have some outstanding instructors lined up again for that. And um, you guys also include the firearms detection aspect as well. For those that have a firearms detection dog, would that be correct? They can Absolutely. attend? Absolutely. Yeah. We have, we've had uh, uh, wildlife people up yes. there that have fish dogs that detect abalone yep. and, and uh, all sorts of You bring your training aids and we'll hide them out for you. Yep. And, uh, and even for the drug, we'll even hide them in a drug hide. And uh, there's a great distraction order for the drug dog or the bomb dog. Oh, of course. And then the agriculture dog or, or the wildlife game dog can go work their dogs, firearms. Mm-hmm whatever yeah when is the date this year and go ahead and list some of the instructors you have coming on there because it sound it'll sound kind of familiar for those that listen to this podcast <laughs> yeah the conference is running uh, this year from may 18th to 22nd it's going to be held in walla walla washington um our keynote speaker for this conference is uh dr paula tiedemann and she's going to be talking on chemical odor uh, perspectives in the canine world uh, we also have Dr. Nathan Hall, who you know very well and has been a guest on your podcast. Um, 
one one speaker that I'm very excited to get and bring in, I heard him speak in Toronto, Canada at an International Association of Bomb Tech and Investigators Conference, is Dr. Kurt Yeager of the FBI, mm-hmm. a chemist, phenomenal speaker on homemade explosives. He speaks at a level that we can understand as opposed to the chemistry side. Exactly. We got, we got to adjust to some of us knuckle-dragger you know, yeah. out here. <laughs> and I came out of that lecture knowing so much more than I went in with, so uh, really excited to get him. Uh, I also managed to get two special agents uh, from the ATF are coming up. Uh, they'll be giving a lecture as well on explosive detection. Andy Wyman uh, from uh, Broward County Sheriff's and HITS is mm-hmm. going to be coming up and giving a lecture. Some of these lectures are going to be dual, where it's going to impact both explosive and narcotics. The ones that don't, we're going to separate the classrooms, so the drug dog handlers go to one class, explosive handlers go to the other. I think there's only one day where that's going to happen. As for uh, site instructors, uh, I was lucky enough to get my NYPD friends to come back. Awesome. Uh, they're going to run a site. They've already given me what sort of parameters they want to make things <laughs> and, interesting. And this past year was challenging because a lot of the bomb dog handlers walked away going, wow, I, I didn't expect that. Uh, exactly. It's all scenario-based. Like I remember the one, uh, did you sweep the area where the command post is going to be? What are you mm-hmm. talking about? Uh, so they're coming back. They're going to be doing a site this year for the full week. Uh, another gentleman I got lots of great reviews about is a gentleman named J.P. Melton. He's with the uh, Spokane County Sheriff's Office. He's not only an explosive canine handler, he's also a bomb tech. Nice. And he does a lot of work with scenario-based style training. So he's going to be running a site. And then obviously yourself is coming. Uh, Cameron Ford is now uh. going to be on our explosive <laughs> site. I'll be there. And he's going to be running a site as well. Um, as for the uh, narcotics side, we have some outstanding instructors from the Pacific Northwest. And uh, what this, this conference uh, encompasses British Columbia, Canada, where I'm from, uh, Alaska, Idaho, Oregon and Washington State, and we draw instructors from all those states and provinces to come in and, and teach. And um, the instructors, uh, John Eckhart is going to be one of the instructors. He's a Portland ex-deputy chief, now has a private business, but is dealing with uh, detection dogs for his whole career. Uh, Christina Bunn, I know she's speaking here at uh, the Nosework Conference. Okay. She does, uh, she's been doing our open field searches for the narcotic dogs. Mm-hmm. Well, vast experience in that regard. And uh, some local handlers from Washington State are now instructors and are certifying officials. So it gives them an opportunity, uh, the handlers that come to this conference, to work their dogs and also really get some really good lectures and speakers and you can take some of the stuff you learn and uh, and use that in these in, in the scenarios just the individuals you have coming for the lecture part are, are going to give such important information i mean luckily enough a lot of the listeners here got to hear dr paula tiedemann about the episode on pseudo versus real um andy talking about some of the legal things you go through as a handler um, and then, of course, Nathan Hall with uh, the odor mixtures. Um, and he's actually going to be here, I think, today in California. Um, and he and I are actually going to do a series of webinars coming up where he is. So his people may not know he's not just on the chemistry side of things. His whole beginning was uh, animal behavior. So he's more of a behaviorist initially. So we're going to do things um, such as uh odor or behavior reactions to odor, you know, things that, you know, we see, but we don't see. Um, so again, having somebody like that at this event is going to be a pretty big deal for the attendees to get to listen to. It doesn't matter what your odor you're trained to detect. Um, 
this information is, is vital to have and to get yourself out ahead and be prepared for legal arguments that you may face no matter what. Um, the more information and education, the better. Um, I always recommend people, you know, the science is quickly evolving a lot of times. Um, take science in, listen to it, and you will see a common thread despite all the how far right, how far left the spectrum can go with information. You will see a common thread. And, uh, and as science evolves, we can kind of tell what are the common themes. So uh, whether it be, like you said, one of the big things is properly containing odor, you know, how you store it. it. That doesn't matter. The, the theme, no matter who you talk to, glass jars, glass jar, you know, aluminized bags, pelican cases, things like that. So for the listeners, this is all going to be great information if you're lucky enough to go attend that conference. Um, I highly recommend it. I've done it now a few times myself as an instructor or a guest speaker. And um, like I said, as a person who gets to go to different organizations, um, those that do certifications under this one have a really they're kind of out ahead by doing that double blind. Um, this is coming. You know, the listeners are out there. <laughs> your your certification programs are going to be changing to a certain level. There's going to be modifications made. There might be, uh, like I said, the state of Illinois now has the mandated odor recognition test, no matter what you're doing. Um, it's not going to be always as easy as, oh, three cars, one or two fines, um, or the five car, two fine thing. It, it, there's going to be some changes that kind of the part you actually brought up I'll bring back real quick is the certification for person born is different than doing a typical bomb dog certification. You have to have a certification that matches what you do, not only just covering basics, but then operationally an evaluation by your peers that match what you do for real. So if you are a person born detection dog and all you're doing for your certification is searching rooms and cars, that doesn't match what you do. And thank goodness the industry sees that and modifications are being made to associations and programs to incorporate a more realistic evaluation by your peers of how you operate with your dog. So all that's great information, uh, great stuff. Thank you for coming on to the show and spending your time while we're out here in in beautiful, sunny Palm Springs, California, <laughs> compared to your 15 inches of snow <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. So I'm sure all your fellow co-workers and family are like, you suck, you're down yeah, there in yeah, Palm Springs getting, enjoying the sunshine. Getting razzed on the emails. So, listeners, again, questions, comments, send them to me via email, Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, at Ford, F-O-R-D, K-number-9.com. And until the next episode, I will talk to you then.